0: Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. <music> Want to learn more about brain tumors and how you might treat them? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth. And what is medicine.
1: Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan Hospital System or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice.
0: We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are into our fourth episode of this podcast. This is such a good episode. There's literally so much to talk about. Oh, my God. I feel
1: like I've always said that, but this one I feel particularly strongly
0: about. Yes, me as well. All right. Do you want to start by giving us the summary
1: then? I will. In this episode, George is struggling being the only man in a house of women and becomes infuriated when he realizes that Izzy and Meredith treat him like their sister. Christina sneakily takes responsibility for a patient that turns out to be Ellis Gray's former scrub nurse. And she ends up getting much more than she bargained for. Meanwhile, Derek, Meredith, George, and Alex have a patient with nails in his head who's doing surprisingly well until a harrowing discovery is made. And finally, an old and
0: scandalous part of Izzy's past is revealed, which makes her the subject of hospital-wide gossip. That's such a watered-down version of what actually happens in this episode, so I'm so excited to actually get into this. There's so much here. I would say there's things that I didn't even mention, but some fun surprises. Oh, yes, it will. All right. So like all of our episodes, we're going to start off with our quick catches. So Anna, which one do you have first?
1: So starting off this episode, we have George being a baby about how he thinks that he is so manly and he's not willing to buy tampons and he doesn't want to see anybody in their underwear. And it's just, I don't know. I found this so dramatic. I was like, George... You need to get over yourself. thought that this was so crazy to a George because he's getting all bent out of shape about like Izzy's walking around in her underwear and everybody's changing in front of me and <laughs> it's so emasculating. But we talked about this last episode. They literally have a co ed locker room. So what's the they difference? they in front of each other all day. I'm like, what? Literally calm down, George.
0: I really thought he was going to go cry in a corner at some point with how sad he was uh, about it. But I you know. know.
1: And I said in my little Instagram introduction that George is my favorite, and he is. But I was I was disappointed in him here. <laughs> Are you regretting your choices um, now? I I would never, I would never regret. I love George, but I I did think he was being a big baby here. So yeah, the first quick catch that I had was as they were getting out of the car. George says to Izzy, "Me gonads, you ovaries," and I was like, "Okay, George." Ovaries are
0: gonads. True. Gonads
1: just means the part of your reproductive system that
0: makes hormones. Gonads are are glands that produce hormones that are involved in reproduction. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, those kinds of things. So yes, George is in fact wrong. Yeah, so like testes are male gonads and ovaries are female gonads. And apparently George doesn't know the difference.
1: (laughs) Apparently George George thinks he's the only one with gonads out here. Apparently. Gosh, yeah. This man's a doctor.
0: Yes. And I think it started off the episode strong in the fact that this is literally a recurring theme throughout the entire episode. Not only with him, but I think with Burke, with Alex, literally all the men. Just a lot of masculinity in this episode. So much toxic
1: masculinity. So much. All right. What's your first quick catch?
0: My first quick catch actually revolves around Christina. So I feel like Christina in particular had lots of quick catches in this episode. And it's funny that I'm jumping to her because... She's also my favorite character. Like, yours is George, mine is <laughs> Christina. But at some point, Christina takes her patient to MRI. So, again, there's no transport in this hospital, apparently. What um, about? Yeah, I don't know. Like, we saw it with Meredith taking her patient to CT. Now it's Christina going to MRI. The patient is Liz Fallon, which we find out is actually Ellis Gray's scrub nurse. But this is the patient that Christina is tasked with taking care of this episode. Oh, excuse me. No, 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 no. She is not tasked. She's with not tasked. Care her, of her. But that's true. She's- steals this patient very sneaky very (laughs) sneaky steal yes taking the patient's chart yeah and I had
1: some notes on this also because I thought it was relatable in the way that some people try to be so cutthroat in medicine yeah in like how early they get to the hospital and what they do and Christina literally got to the hospital at 4 a.m. so that she could steal this chart and make sure that she got the best surgery true I'm gonna be in surgery today's my day on what like I tell you. What do you know? You know that I was here
0: at four and you didn't get here till 4.30. Tell me. No. Oh. On one hand, so badass, but on the other hand, gunner energy. And gunner energy basically it's means touch- that they'll just do whatever it takes for them to look better and do better.
1: <laughs> Such a gunner.
0: But you know, the other quick catch that I saw with Christina, and this is also in relation to Liz and her patient, is that... Burke tells her at some point, you know, get these labs, do this and that, and do an enema. And an enema is when you basically shoot saline up someone's rectum to clear out any stool that would be in their rectal cavity. And mm-hmm. Christina wouldn't be doing the enema. It's nurses that do enemas. So I thought that was yeah. really interesting. Unless Burke was just trying to haze her. I don't know. Because wow, well, Burke was very was, angsty in this but... episode with Christina. I'm still not entirely sure why. Like, is it just because she's a gunner? I think maybe she's a gunner. I mean, She literally stole the patient and is all excited about this Whipple, the surgery that they're planning to do or that she thinks they're planning to do. And I think Burke's just not here for it. (laughs) So he's just trying to teach her I just thought it got really nasty by the end. I was bummed for her. Yeah, right? Okay, this is my last one. So when Liz, the patient, is in her hospital bed, she's hooked up to all these monitors so you can see her heart rate and you can see what her body's doing. And (laughs) Christina's taking her vitals and she goes and (laughs) literally feels for her pulse which there's literally no point in doing that because her heart rate's already on the it's monitor. So on the why monitor? is she her balls? <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my gosh. So, those are my Christina catches. <laughs>
1: Love it. So I have some from one of the first scenes when Meredith and Derek are chatting, and each of them said something crazy. So Meredith says, yesterday I had two guys with colostomies that needed dressing changes every 15 minutes. And <laughs> a colostomy is, it's basically a bag that is outside of your body that connects to your colon. And basically the poop drains out into this bag and." The whole point of the colostomy bag is that you don't need to do dressing changes every 15 minutes. The bag is there to catch everything. And if she's needing to change dressings every 15 minutes, I'm seriously concerned about the way that this
0: procedure was done. That is very true. I was on colorectal surgery for a month and the amount of colostomies that I saw, one, was exponential, but then two... We never, ever change these colostomy bags every 15 minutes. That's just crazy. So some people have a surgery and it's irreversible and they have this colostomy bag for the rest of their lives. And although you do have to empty the bag once in a while, it's not every 15 minutes. If not like once a day.
1: And then the other one was then when she's talking to Derek, Derek says, I have two chordotomies. And to be honest, I didn't actually know what a chordotomy was, so I looked it up. And it is a procedure where you cut through the spinal cord, which was part of why I had to look it up because it just seemed too crazy that that would be what it was. (laughs) And this is very dangerous because your spinal cord is very important for pretty much every physiologic function that you have. And this is a treatment that used to be done for chronic pain by basically severing some of the spinal cord that helps with sensation. And it was still very risky, very high rates of complications. And they really stopped doing this almost entirely in the 90s. The only reason that it's done now and that it was done in 2005 was for people who have very severe cancer with very limited life expectancy and opioid resistant pain. Mm -hmm. And basically
0: the fact that Derek had two of these in one day is absolutely unheard of. That's true. Speaking of Derek, this is actually a medical fact that I found in this episode was that when Dr. Shepard is taking care of the patient with nails in his head, he's testing his sensation along his body. And you see this little pinprick tool and it looks almost like a wheel with spokes on it. And it just travels along the body, kind of poking the patient and testing their sensation. I did see that. Yes, it's actually accurate. Like Some neuro people will carry this around to test pinprick sensation. So I thought that was super interesting.
1: Yeah, he did a good job there. Derek had some good some good moves here. As I say, should we check in on our scrubbing count?
0: Oh, I think we should.
1: I noticed Derek do a pretty solid scrub, at least in what we saw him do. We talked a little bit about this last time, but there's very specific techniques for scrubbing in. And one of those things literally is making sure that after you rinse off, that the water drips down your arms in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You want it to drip from your fingers downward because you basically want your hands to be the cleanest part of your body yeah and derek does this you see him kind of holding his hands up and letting the water drip down so go derek
0: making us all proud the scoreboard has one bad scrub for weber and one good scrub for Derek. there we go Also, speaking of surgery and Derek in general, he has goggles on this surgery. So thank you, Derek. We appreciate you keeping your eyes safe. (laughs) Can we talk about the other surgical etiquette mishaps in this episode? (laughs) Please. Okay. The first one I have is when Izzy walks into the surgery for the prostate cancer guy. And she walks in with the mask held up to her face, which usually they even reprimand you for this. They really want it to be on your face. But then midway through her conversation, she just slams her mask down and starts talking. Yeah. It's like out of anger as it, like she dramatically pulls off her mask. She does. You can't do that, is it? Literally the first time that I went into an OR without a mask on, I got yelled at like <laughs> there's so- the same thing happened to me
1: because yes. you don't have to be wearing a mask in the hallway before you get into the OR but as soon as you step foot in the OR you need to be wearing a mask yeah and I a couple times like, accidentally forgot to put it on or like I had it hanging from my neck when I walked in and they were like mask <laughs> they're so serious
0: about it but then <laughs> yeah. you see Bailey the resident with no mask on at all she's not <laughs> scrubbed in so she's just in her regular scrubs And she's right by the table. Like, ma'am, ma'am, what are you doing here? I couldn't believe
1: it. Supposedly, she was assisting on this surgery. Are you operating on this
0: guy, not scrubbed in? I could not believe it. I thought that at first she was just observing, but then I looked closer and I said, no, she's definitely right next to the table, right next to his side. Crazy. Yeah.
1: So crazy. Gosh. So another thing that I found that I've thought was actually pretty accurate was Bailey's speech at the beginning of this episode about pre-rounding and rounding. So pre-rounds basically are just The interns are going to go see their patients and find out the information they need. And then they report back to Bailey. They give her their presentations. And then in theory, all of them should go round with the attendings together. Exactly. And Bailey gives this whole speech.
0: You are the first person they see in the morning. You say please. You say thank you. You apologize for waking them up. You make them feel good about you. Why is that important? Because then they'll talk to you and tell you what's wrong. Why is that important? Because then you can tell your attending what they need to know during rounds. And why is that important? Because if you make your resident look bad, she'll torture you until you beg for your mama. Now get out there. I want pre-rounds done by 5.30 a.m.
1: She says, I want pre-rounds done by five 30, which is <laughs> brutal, but that's real for sure. Very true. But also then, after all of that, we later see Christina rounding on her patient by herself with Dr. Perk. <laughs> and I was so confused because I'm thinking, first of all, that's not how things work in general. But then I was thinking, well, maybe they just round differently in this hospital. But then I thought, no,
0: Bailey already gave this speech about rounding with them at the beginning. So Christina just ahead of the game, apparently. She doesn't need a resident. (laughs) Yeah, she can just round with the attending herself. Yes, but I, I totally empathize with the whole rounds being done by 530 Christina saying she got there at four. When I was on my surgery rotations, I would get to the hospital around like four to 4.30 each day. You kind of have to. Yeah, we we have to because we have to go see our patients. We have to see what happened overnight. We have to formulate a plan for the day. We have to talk to our residents. And then we go around and we would start rounds on my colorectal surgery rotation at least at like five or 5.30 in the morning. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. And I at least found surgery rounds
1: to be pretty intimidating sometimes. And it was important to me to talk to my resident before I presented on rounds Mm -hmm. and make sure that they agreed with my plan and make sure that exactly what Bailey said, they they don't want us to make them look bad if we say the wrong thing. And so you want to have this
0: conversation so that you don't get called out during rounds and you want to make sure that you have enough time to do all this. That's true. I think another thing that really resonated with me was when, again, Bailey was talking to the interns and the residents saying, You're the first person that patients see in the morning. You say please. You say thank you. You apologize for waking them up. And yeah, I don't know about you, but this was so real for me because patients really hate being woken up in the morning. And I always felt so bad. If I could, I would avoid going to see the patient until the last minute possible, because I just wanted to give them as much sleep as I could.
1: Me too. And it is so real because patients hate it. And I don't blame them at all, because especially when you're in the hospital and you have a lot going on with you, oftentimes you're also woken up many times throughout the night for nurses to get vitals and check in on you and whatnot. Absolutely. And then we come in and wake them up at 4.30 4.30 and we want to ask them all these questions. And I would say, so how are you feeling? And they're always like, I don't know. I just woke up. It's I'm what time tired. is it? It's 4.30 in the morning. I like, don't I'm know t- Yeah, happening. Exactly. I'm exhausted. Like, <laughs> like, no wonder that's how they feel. And I, I actually have a story about this. So I had this one patient. I think that he was actually my first solo patient. The first patient who was assigned to me as a med student. Oh, no way. And this man would get so angry when I woke him up. He was a pretty angry guy to begin with. He had a lot of neurologic things going on. But every morning when I woke him up, he would be so bitter that he would refuse to answer my questions. And he would sass me and he would tease me. And I always felt so bad. And I was so frustrated trying to get through to this man. And, you know, for neuro patients, you're also asking a lot of questions that the patient can feel really dumb like Mm -hmm. where are you right now what's your name you know what year is it and that can be really frustrating for them when you ask them those things over and over again even though in the case of this patient he sometimes didn't know there you go and that's why we asked them. I know and this first day I came in and he's so crabby about my waking him up and I go Okay, I'm gonna ask you these questions again. Can you tell me your name? And he goes, "Can you tell me your name?" Oh gosh, I go, I go. I go yes, I'm Anna.
0: What's your name? He <laughs> goes. He literally mocks me. He goes, "Yeah, I'm Anna. What's your name?" I'm like, Oh my god. Sir? Meanwhile, first year med student Anna's like, "Okay, I'm not, I I'm what, like, what do I do here?" I'm so oh I feel like I just wanted you to tell me your name, and now I'm not convinced that you know it. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, that's it's so accurate because. A lot of times, patients do get annoyed with these questions that we literally have to ask. If we yeah, them, And I don't blame them. And they say, did you ask this? And you say no. They say, okay, go back and ask this patient. This okay, then we're in trouble. And then we have to wake them up again. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, that was a great story, Anna. And I think it really captures the feeling that I think Bailey was trying to convey to these residents and saying, you better make sure you're polite and cordial when you wake these patients up. Which, Christina... Yeah. Obviously she didn't take did. to heart because every never. time she went to go see her patient, just flip the light switch off. She was always like, "Are you kidding? You need to be. You need to
1: learn how to wake your patient." Exactly. And after Bailey had just given them this talk, come exactly.
0: on, exactly. Oh my gosh. Oh, Christina. Christina has some work to do in her patient interaction skills. She does. She does. Her bedside manner might be lacking just yeah. a little bit. Just a little <laughs> bit. I was just gonna say. On that note, do you want to get into our first topic, which was? heavily involving Christina? Oh, I would love to. So our first topic is going to be pancreatic cancer, which we see in Christina's patient, Nurse Liz Fallon, who was Ellis Gray's former scrub nurse. So we're just going to kind of go over the overview of pancreatic cancer, kind of what you're looking for in terms of diagnosis and then treatment options. And then in this patient in particular, kind of why they decided to do more of the no treatment route. So Pancreatic cancer is what we commonly refer to as pancreatic adenocarcinoma. We usually refer to pancreatic adenocarcinoma as pancreatic cancer because it's 95% of the cancers that we see in the pancreas. And so this is usually what we're referring to. The pancreas, just to give you an overview of its function in the body, this is responsible for making and transporting juices that help with digestion of foods and things. And this is what we call exocrine function. And then it also helps with hormone production. And this is what we call endocrine function. So the most common type of pancreatic cancer, again, is that adenocarcinoma and normally that occurs in the ducts that transport these pancreatic juices. And that's what we call exocrine pancreatic cancer. Gotcha. And so to talk a little bit about how prevalent this disease is, it's actually the second most common gastrointestinal malignancy in the US. And about 53,000 people a year will present with this disease. But it's actually the fourth leading cause of death, despite how little people are diagnosed with it each year. It's quite deadly. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: You talked a little bit about how the pancreas works. I mean, we see this patient, Liz, in this episode who's clearly very sick. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could tell us more about what causes
0: somebody to be so sick when they have this cancer. Definitely. So usually this pancreatic cancer is in the head of the pancreas. There's different sections of the pancreas, but usually it presents in the head of the pancreas. And so... This is what we will be focusing on in this episode just because it is the more prevalent area that the cancer will Mm -hmm. arise. And this is significant due to the proximity of the head of the pancreas to other organs in your body, like the gallbladder and the liver. And so when you have cancer, the pancreas, it doesn't just affect the pancreas. It also affects the gallbladder and the liver. And it causes all of these issues and the things that you need for digestion. And And it leads to these symptoms. Yeah, yeah so usually you'll present with some kind of symptom that is reflective of what the cancer is blocking. So if it's blocking the gallbladder, for example, you'll have some jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin and eyes, which we call scleral icterus when you see it in the eyes. You can actually see this in Liz in the episode. I was going to say, I was so impressed because I feel like sometimes these little details, they actually put an
1: effect on her eyes or they must have because her eyes did look yellow in the show. I kept on noticing how yellow her eyes looked.
0: Yes. So I was trying to look this up to see how they actually do this for TV. And what I found was that they usually use a mixture of turmeric, like the spice, And then vodka as eye drops. Oh, they actually put something in her actual eyes? Oh, that's so interesting. I just assumed that it was CGI. And it could be CGI. I have no idea. That's just what I found they've done with other TV shows. I don't know if in particular this is for Grey's Anatomy, but... That's, what that's super heard. interesting. Oh, I, I mean, know. it was much more real
1: looking, if that's what they did, than the CGI they did for making the baby blue. So <laughs>
0: The blue baby. Yes. The Smurf baby. <laughs>
1: yes. Oh my God. The, the Willy Wonka blueberry baby. Yes. The blueberry baby. If you guys haven't listened to our second episode,
0: you have to go back to yes. find out what we're talking about. Yes. Otherwise, this will make absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> Some other symptoms that you're kind of looking for with pancreatic cancer... Again, when you are presenting with this cancer, it's usually pretty late onset because you don't have many symptoms. And one of the big Mm -hmm. symptoms that you can get is actually weight loss and abdominal pain and bloating. And that's just because of the mass effect of the tumor. So it's just kind of growing and causing pain in your nerves and other structures around the pancreas. So those are kind of the symptoms that you're looking for. And with these patients, it's really tough because diagnosis usually happens pretty late because they just don't know that something's wrong until last minute. And these patients usually present with pretty advanced cancer. If we go to diagnosis and how we actually find these patients with pancreatic cancer, it all starts like most things in medicine, with a physical exam. So looking for symptoms and signs that I mentioned above. So the jaundice or the yellowing of the skin and eyes, any weight loss, any abdominal pain. And that kind of kickstarts the assessment for these patients. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times in pancreatic cancer, routine labs will be normal. But you can see some liver tests and some other nonspecific tests be elevated. So like amylase and lipase are two of the common ones. And those are usually in regards to the pancreas being angry. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say amylase and lipase are
1: substances that the pancreas makes that help with digestion and we look at these
0: labs for all kinds of things. So if you have pancreatitis, you also might have high amylase mm-hmm. and lipase. Yeah, exactly. And so since those aren't very specific, another specific marker that we use to screen for pancreatic cancer is something called cancer-associated antigen nineteen nine, or we call it CA-19. I'm having step one flashback. Oh my gosh, right? I know. <laughs> it's bookmarked in our brain. It is. But this can also be used not only for screening, but also to monitor how the treatment is going for the patient. So So other diagnostic things that you normally do for these patients are other sorts of imaging. So ultrasound, MRI, CTs, these are all to identify and help stage pancreatic cancer. So staging just means how far the disease has spread, how big it is. But kind of what I had alluded to earlier is that a lot of these patients that are going through these diagnostic steps have already had this disease for so long that by the time they present to the doctor, 80% of patients will already have spread of the disease at the diagnosis. Mm, that's hard. Yeah. So it's it's really difficult in terms of prognosis for these patients because they've already had this disease kind of festering for so long. And so treatment becomes really difficult for them. So Anna, what do you know about treatment for pancreatic cancer?
1: So as Christina is very eager about surgery is kind of the main option. Mm -hmm. It is the only treatment that is going to provide the possibility for a true cure. Yeah. The hard part is the majority of patients, like Olivia said, have such advanced disease at the time of
0: diagnosis Mm -hmm. that not very many people actually qualify to have this surgery, which is known as the Whipple. Yep, exactly. And what does Whipple stand for? What's the the scientific medical name for Whipple, Anna? Do you remember? Oh, boy. It's a big word.
1: It's a pancreaticoduodenectomy. Yes, gold
0: star. Ding. <laughs> oh, yes, we get our ding. But this is the funniest part because when... Liz was talking about the procedure. What does she say instead of pancreaticoduodenectomy? Duodectomy. Says dudectomy. And I'm pretty sure that is not a medical procedure that we do in the hospital. I was going to say I think that Alex in this episode needs a dudectomy. Oh, I think he does. I think you're very right about that. Take some of the dude out of him. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, we labeled this part mispronunciations because Anna and I both there are kind so of many on this episode. This episode. Of there being so many mispronunciations. So, Anna, what's the next one that we see? This is actually my favorite. So,
1: the term for having blood in your stool is called melina. And Christina calls it melina. Melina, (laughs) which honestly just sounds like the name of a person. It does. "Ah, There's melina. (laughs) Melina. Oh, my gosh. And then she also says another one. What's the other one that she says? So, there's actually two kinds of blood in your stool. You can have what we call black tarry stool. So kind of dried up blood in your stool. That's Melina. You mean Melina? <laughs> yes. I'm so sorry. That's Melina. <laughs> That's Melina over there. <laughs> and then there is hematochesia, which is basically when you have bright red blood
0: in your stool. What does Christina say?
1: Um, hematochesia.
0: Hematochesia. It's <laughs> <That's> so funny. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. And then Burke, to top it all off, when he's talking about next steps, he goes, biopsy. And it's not like it was a mispronunciation, just the intonation on it was so wrong. It was so funny. Biopsy. And it's not like biopsy is a weird word. It's not. It's like, I'd like to check the
1: biopsy. The biopsy. (laughs) I feel like he thought that he was sounding somehow like a more sophisticated... Yeah, sophisticated. (laughs) Oh, the biopsy.
0: Biopsy. It's amazing. Oh my god, out here doing surgeries he shouldn't do, and yes, saying things wrong, of course. So that kind of concludes our mispronunciation segment. And that's a wrap. (laughs) And speaking of Burke not doing this surgery, so the Whipple or the pancreaticoduodenectomy is a really, really complicated procedure. It's very specialized. That is only done by surgical oncologist or gastrointestinal surgeons. It's usually mm-hmm. done at high volume centers. So centers or hospitals that do this surgery a lot, they're very well versed in the operation because mm-hmm. it does a lot. You're removing the head of the pancreas. You're removing some of the small intestine. You're removing some of the bile duct, which comes from the gallbladder. And so there's just no way that Burke would be doing this Whipple being a cardiothoracic no. surgeon. Like there is just so no way. I
1: I have started a new little bit that I think that we should continue throughout the show. I will be posting this on Instagram. So (laughs) make sure you take a look at that. This section is called Burke Does Something He Is Absolutely Not Qualified to Do. (laughs) That's amazing. It's so good. I went through our past episodes, and currently this is our fourth example of such. No Um, way. We talked about in episode two, he did a PEDS congenital heart repair that there is no way he could have done. And then in episode three, he does a surgery to remove the penis from the ruptured something that we don't know that was probably more of a GI surgery than anything. Mm -hmm. And then we had him doing a final brain death exam, which only a neurologist or neurosurgeon can do.
0: We love it. Well, apparently Burke just does it all in the hospital. He's a one man show. That's why he's in the running for chief. Clearly. Oh my gosh. Oh, so anyway, that was our little caveat on on Burke that he would not actually be doing this surgery. But some other options that you can do aside from surgery for these patients is chemotherapy and radiation. And so there's kind of two different buckets that we can talk about now just because I think it's a good differentiation to have. So we have neoadjuvant treatment, which is treatment that you give prior to a surgery to remove cancer or some kind of growth. And then you also have adjuvant treatment, and this is treatment administered after a surgery with a goal of preventing recurrence. And so these are just two broad categories that we put additional treatment into. Mm -hmm. And in this case, for this patient, Mm -hmm. what do we see? We don't see her doing anything. This is very confusing for Christina in this episode. Yeah, I mean, Christina's saying, you know, look at her labs, look at her imaging. Like, why aren't we doing something? Because at the end, Christina goes up to Burke. She says, what are we even doing with her here? I feel like she's just in this hospital to die. And then Burke gives her this long, you know, knowing look. You know what I think? I think you never intended to do the whipple. I I think this entire thing has been bull. And you're behaving like the only reason she's in this hospital is to die. And we do find out that Liz is there for kind of comfort care, palliative care, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Yeah, which, you know, ends up having
1: to be a decision that a patient makes. And clearly, Liz here, she's a medical professional. She knows what this disease is doing to her body. She knows what her odds are. And she knows the way that treatment could make her suffer. And so I guess from that standpoint, it's less surprising
0: to me that in the end, she does just want palliative care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's completely understandable. Again, like we had talked about a little bit earlier, is that there's a really poor prognosis for a lot of these patients that present with pancreatic cancer because it is so advanced when they get diagnosed. And so mortality rates or the percent of patients alive after diagnosis is really morbid. The one-year mortality rate, so think of someone who got diagnosed at the beginning of the year. At the end of the year, only 24% of those people will still be alive. And then at five years, wow. it's going to be 6%. Wow. It's a really sad disease. Yeah, it's a devastating disease. It is a really devastating Mm -hmm. disease. So a lot of these patients will choose the palliative care, the hospice route. And so this is for patients with advanced disease that's unresectable. They have really no other treatment choices. And this is what Liz came to the hospital for to get comfort care. So getting that oxygen that you see with Liz, she has a little oxygen mask on to Mm -hmm. get pain controls, any kind of pain medications that will help these patients be more comfortable in their final days and hours. And then Mm -hmm. a lot of palliative care actually focuses a lot on the support of the patient and the families. So making decisions, managing the emotions that go along with this disease are all things that palliative yeah. care can accomplish.
1: Yeah. And I sort of was thinking, we can get into kind of the hazing that Burke did in this episode, yeah. yeah, but it's one thing for him to do that to Christina. It's a whole other thing that the patient, I mean, Liz says in the first scene when she meets Christina, you're here because you want to see the Whipple. Oh, yeah. And then she just goes... Along with this for the whole episode, mm-hmm. and it isn't until the very end when she is dying that she says to Christina, they were never going to do the surgery.
0: The guy was just pulling you along type of thing.
1: It actually felt, and I know Christina had such gunner energy in this episode, mm-hmm. but you see her in the end. And even you see her throughout the episode almost taking a similar stance to what Izzy did when she was mm-hmm. like, we need to do something about this brain death patient. Yeah, Christina in this episode, she just kept saying... Whether it was because she wanted the surgery or not, she yeah. was saying, this patient's circling the drain. She's getting worse. Her labs are getting worse. We can't just sit here. We have to do something. Exactly. And you start to see her
0: emotions really getting to her in this episode for the first time. Oh, yeah, exactly. And then her emotions get even more involved when Liz starts coding or goes into cardiac arrest. And yeah. Christina, I don't know if she didn't know that she was DNR, but... She goes and she starts performing CPR on her and calls a code and she's going against her DNR or her do not resuscitate order. And do not resuscitate is basically when a patient says, if I go into cardiac arrest, if I stop breathing, if my heart stops beating, I don't want you to try to perform any life-saving measures on me. Right. You can actually have malpractice suits for this. Like, you can get sued for doing this.
1: Yeah, it's not okay. And this is now the second time that we see this happen in the four episodes that we've done between the brain death patients and now this. So I think we also are going to need to start a count for someone resuscitates a DNR patient.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is such a serious thing in the hospital. And so, again, I don't know if Christina just didn't know that she was DNR if she did know but did it anyways but then burke does come in and he's like stop she's dnr you have to stop and has to literally pull her away that's where she like really kind of had this breakdown Mm -hmm. and burke gets so upset they have this whole talk christina basically breaks down and is feeling awful and i think this goes back to a quote that meredith had said earlier in the episode and she says sometimes doing everything can be worse than doing nothing and yeah. I think this is a case where that's very much true. Doing yeah. doing CPR, doing chest compressions, doing life saving measures on a patient who is DNR is much worse than doing nothing, even though it's so hard for Christina to Wrap her brain around the fact that she can't do anything to help this patient. Well, and to a certain extent, I wonder if maybe Christina needed an experience like this.
1: Yeah. And I mostly am in the school of thought that what Burke did was not appropriate and that he made Christina do a lot of busy work because he was trying to punish her for being so hardened and so set on surgery. Uh But in the end, I also think that they did need somebody to be running these labs and taking care of this patient. And he did kind of give her an opportunity to take care of this patient who she got quite emotionally attached to. True. And we do kind of see the emotional side of Christina come out for the first time in this episode as a result. Yeah. Which I think is refreshing. And I think that for as much as you sometimes have to isolate yourself emotionally in order to make this job doable, that when you are as hardened as we have seen Christina in the first three episodes – it makes it really hard to be a good doctor to your patients.
0: I think it's detrimental both ways. So you can't be too hardened, but you also can't be too emotionally invested. And so I think you see her shifting more towards the side of emotion in this episode. And I think that, I don't know. I guess I just thought that this was an
1: important lesson for her to learn. But I thought that Burke gave her this lesson in a pretty cruel way, um, especially knowing that this patient was not going to make it. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that he made her do all these things and get really invested in this case and chose not to tell her yeah. until it was happening that this patient was not going to make it. And that everybody knew that this patient was not mm-hmm. going to make it. I thought was kind of cruel. Yeah. And then at the end, to kind of add insult to injury. He asked Christina, have you ever called a death before? Yeah, she has to call
0: her first time of death on this patient.
1: I just thought that in the midst of her having this clear meltdown where Burke had to literally pull her off of the patient yeah. and where she had tears in her eyes and is having her first really traumatic patient death, that this was maybe not the time to teach her that lesson. I don't know. I just thought that Burke particularly mean to Christina in this episode. And I,
0: by the end, felt pretty bad for her. I agree. I agree. Well, I think that kind of touches on pancreatic cancer, you know, in terms of diagnosis and treatment, but also the ethical, you know, concerns that we had regarding Christina and Burke and the patient. So oh, yeah. are we ready to do our mid-episode fun fact and then take a quick break? Let's do it. All right. So Olivia actually found a great fun fact this week. Do you want to share it with everyone? Yeah. So Derek Shepard, Dr. Derek Shepard, the man, the myth, the legend, Mick Dreamy. Mick Dreamy. Yes. He was almost not played. By Patrick Dempsey. He was almost played by Rob Lowe. (laughs) I think this is so funny. I don't know why I find that so hilarious. I think it's just so hard for anyone who's watched as much Grey's Anatomy as we have to even imagine McDreamy as anyone other than Patrick Dempsey. So true. (laughs) He just is Derek. He is Derek. And frankly, when I see Patrick
1: Dempsey in other things, I'm like, that's Derek. That
0: is Derek. (laughs) And so I found that Rob Lowe had wrote in his memoir that he was offered the Derek role but then had turned it wow. down for a CBS show called Doctor Vegas that failed to make it. Basically, hilarious. <laughs> but the bright side is that now he's on the show 911 Lone Star, which is a spinoff uh. of 911, which was a spinoff of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> so he's tangentially related to Grey's Anatomy. Still, <laughs> he found his place. Yeah, I love that.
1: All right, let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, we're going to tell you a bit about brain tumors. Yes, we
0: will. See you after the break.
1: Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or link tree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support the podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Now back to the show.
0: Welcome back, everyone. All right, Anna, I'm ready for you to tell me all about this brain tumor. All right. Well,
1: before we even get to the brain tumors, I think we should talk about this patient who came in with all these nails in his head. Well, I guess it's a good prerequisite. Yes. So we have this guy come in, and he has fallen down the stairs with a nail gun. And we see these crazy x rays with him just having a whole bunch of nails. In his brain. And Derek Shepard's going to need to operate. I think when Christina learns about this patient, I think maybe George or Alex is telling her about it and says, this guy has nails in his head. And
0: she asked something about what's wrong with him. And they said, oh, no, he's conscious. Yep. You can see her regretting her life choices of stealing the patient for the Whipple. She's like, gosh, uh-huh. dang it. I want to go see uh-huh. this nail patient.
1: <laughs> uh huh. So this is absolutely wild. And honestly, what we're going to focus on is actually not the nails in his head, but rather what caused him to end up with the nails in his head. Exactly. And Meredith at the beginning of this episode is just bugging the hell out of Derek saying, This doesn't just happen for no reason. How does somebody just trip down the stairs with a nail gun and end up with all these nails in their head? This doesn't just happen. And she's very worried that there's something going on in his brain that made him either lose consciousness or have a seizure or something that would have made him fall down the stairs. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And... Olivia, do you want to tell everybody Derek's quote? Because I think that you actually you actually mentioned this at
0: some point. Oh, yes, yes, the zebra <laughs> quote. Oh, the zebra quote is the best. Just because you hear hoofbeats, don't assume zebras. So in medical school, we always talk about common things being common. So if someone comes in with some kind of symptom, think of the most common thing first, and then you can think about the more you know, outrageous or uncommon things. And so zebras are what we call the uncommon or the rare causes of diseases. I was going to say,
1: I think this is funny because the diagnosis that we find out towards the middle of the episode is that this man has what Derek says is a tumor of his hypothalamus, which is a part of your brain. And I looked up the incidence of hypothalamic tumors. All right, what is it? Is 0.5 to 2 per million. Oh!
0: So Derek, I, I literally wrote down, Derek, here's your one in a million. That is his one in a million. There we go. Anna is our mathematician here, folks. I, you know, I do my
1: best. I appreciate the compliment, but it's. I don't think this math is very difficult and I'm a little <laughs> concerned that
0: this hotshot neurosurgeon is having so much trouble with it. <laughs> he, can't, he can't perform these math skills. He didn't do basic math. No, apparently not. All right. So tell us a little bit about hypothalamic tumors. Yes. So I want to start off with a little quick catch that I found super funny. I think I know what you're
1: going to say. This is so funny. So they make this whole big deal throughout this episode that the (laughs) CT scanners are down. So they can't do CTs. Everybody's going to have to get an MRI. And when Derek, after the first surgery for the nails, wants to scan this guy again, he says, I want to get an MRI to make sure there's not any residual bleeding. And they show Meredith and Derek looking at the scans, and it literally says on the image, CT skull, and it's a CT scan. And I was like, come on, guys. Oh, it's such a good catch. Oh, That was such an easy thing to fix. You didn't even try.
0: You didn't even try. Oh, my gosh. But what we
1: see on this CT is a tumor in the area that they tell us is the hypothalamus. I did some research about hypothalamic tumors, and- The main role of the hypothalamus, which is this part of your brain, is regulating all of your bodily functions via hormone production. So the hypothalamus produces lots of hormones that affects lots of different things in your body. Some of these are like your body temperature, hunger and thirst, mood, sex drive, and then some even very important things like blood pressure, sleep, breathing. It has a lot of important functions. However, what Derek says about the hypothalamus is that the tumor is in a key part of your brain where your memory and personality resides. Mm-hmm. Now, th- there are a lot of things in your brain that affect memory. The main structures of the brain where we really think about short term memory is called the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. And then when you have long-term memories, that tends to be kind of in your cerebral cortex, which is just kind of all the tissue surrounding your brain. The hypothalamus does have some roles in memory, Mm -hmm. but it generally is more for the coordination or the kind of updating of memory. So learning new things and forgetting things that you don't need to know anymore. Yeah. So more
0: like a relay station in your brain.
1: Yeah. And so... Derek says, though, there's a very strong chance that you're going to lose all of your memories and that you're not going to be the same person anymore. One in a million chance? You know, I was pretty confused. (laughs) And the thing is, any brain surgery that you have, there are going to be risks of memory changes, of personality changes. There's so much about the brain that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And when you're cutting into something so vital, these things are risks. Yeah. But I wouldn't
0: have ever thought that this would be the risk. Like our main concern is memory. Yeah. What so, What would be some main concerns? What will happen if the hypothalamus is kind of disrupted? Great question. So generally, you might get headaches, which this patient
1: said that he had, nausea or vomiting. You can actually have pretty bad visual issues. Although in this patient, given that his visual issues resolved after the nails came out, I don't think the tumor was the cause of mm-hmm. his visual problems. And then, like we said, issues with temperature regulation, sleep patterns, you can have some issues with emotional control. So kind of outbursts of anger, confusion, sometimes you can have really bad depression. These are all things that can happen as a result of mass effects. So this tumor pushing on the hypothalamus mm-hmm. and compressing important structures. Generally, what I think Derek could have said is that learning and mood could be affected. Yeah. But saying... You could lose all of your memories. And your personality would be completely different. (laughs) No. So then to talk a little bit about the surgery in order to remove this tumor, I was wondering, well, maybe in order to do the surgery, you might hit another structure that is important. I was just trying to make any sense of what Derek was saying. (laughs) So here's what I learned. The main way that these kind of tumors are resected is what we call a transphenoid surgery. And what that means is they go through your nose, can actually get to your brain that way. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot safer and there's a lot fewer complications. And for a minute, this is actually really funny. For a minute, I was like thinking, well, maybe they just couldn't do this type of surgery back when Grey's Anatomy came out. So I thought I'd <laughs> look it up and see maybe maybe he just didn't have this kind of surgery there yet. You go. In fact, the first transphenoidal surgery was in 1906. All right. So, so. <laughs> Derek had about 100 years to get on board. He did. He did. Yeah. So that was just incorrect. And then I think the other thing that is highly incorrect with this that I found a bit amusing was that Derek is basically saying, if you don't have this surgery, you have very little chance of living. Mm -hmm. And he was basically like, even with this surgery, probably only have five to 10 years. Yeah. And I was wondering, what is this tumor that is so dangerous that he has? And I took a look at what we now know is actually a CT, not an MRI. (laughs) And what we see when we kind of pause that image is a very round, symmetrical, midline tumor. Mm-hmm. It looks like it has different colors on it, which tells us that it there might be some calcifications. It might have some cystic components, which is just different tissue types in the tumor. So what I think is most likely is that this tumor is something called a craniopharyngioma. And a craniopharyngioma actually does have the highest mortality of this type of tumor. However, the mortality is still very low. yeah. and I looked at the survival rates both in two thousand and five and today. And even in two thousand and five with treatment, the five and ten year survival rates were eighty to ninety two percent. And today, their five year survival rate was eighty nine to ninety four percent, and the ten year survival rate was eighty to ninety percent, all right. So <laughs> the vast majority of patients with some
0: kind of treatment, surgery, radiation, they're going to be fine, yeah. Yeah, they were so concerned. Derek was basically saying this is a death sentence. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to die. And if you do something about it, you're still going to die. But just a little bit later.
1: Yeah, I kind of just felt like by the end, they were just throwing out medical words like (laughs) brain tumor, memory, medical words, bam, he's gonna die. I think they just made the assumption, well, people hear brain tumor, they know
0: that's bad. We're just going to say this guy's going to die. Which I think is, is fair because I think there are a lot of negative connotations with brain tumors. And there are, in fact, brain tumors that are very, very dangerous and can lead to death and very serious complications. But there are also tumors kind of like this one or even a handful of others that aren't as serious. And although they can cause problems, they won't be causing this death in three to five years, like Derek is saying. Right, absolutely. And I think that's something funny and I think this happens a lot in this show
1: is because they're trying to throw medical words out they just make it kind of make progressively less sense. Yep. <laughs> and okay, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you guys a cool medical fun fact. I was kind of looking through, trying to figure out what kinds of tumors this could possibly be. The only ones I came up with were teratoma or a germ cell tumor. Teratomas are my favorite. Teratomas are really kind of wild tumors, which is why I wanted to bring mm-hmm. it up. Teratomas basically are just tumors that are made up of lots of different tissue types. Mm-hmm. It's not just one kind of cell line. And as a result, these tumors can have all kinds of different things you'd see throughout your body. They can have hair. They can actually have teeth. They can
0: have mucus. They can have skin. All kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. They're so wild. They're so funky. And they can be anywhere in your body. They can kind of grow anywhere. Yeah. But like Anna said, this could possibly be a teratoma in the brain. So, but that's an awesome fun fact because I think they're just so fascinating. No, totally. Can we talk about the ethics in this case? Because that's what I was going to say. I was so blown away (laughs) so i think
1: that the biggest part of this was how inappropriately meredith behaved in trying to basically talk this family out of having surgery. Yes.
0: I mean, in fairness, I mean, not in fairness because what she did was wrong, but she had recently went to go talk to her mom in the nursing home. She was all worked up and emotional about her mom and her Alzheimer's and her memory loss that she went back to the hospital and Derek saying, oh, you know, if we have this surgery, there's a possibility of of memory loss and, you know, you're not going to be yourself anymore. And Meredith just I think she was just triggered and flipped a switch and was like, you cannot do this. She had this whole meltdown
1: about saying you would rather have a couple of good years than have him not know who you are. Yeah, And obviously she is in this very vulnerable place right now with her mom sometimes not knowing who she is, Mm -hmm. but she just completely took it out on this patient in a really unacceptable way. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that when it comes to these decisions, this is really where this has to be a patient and a family's decision. And we talked a little bit about this with our other patient Mm -hmm. who, you know, opts in the end to have palliative care. These are really sensitive decisions that really have to be up to any given person.
0: I think the circumstances surrounding each case are just so specific and specialized that each family Just needs to take into account, I mean, what they value, what they want out of the next however many years the patient has, what their beliefs in the treatment is going to be. I mean, it's so personalized that there's just no way that a doctor can come in like Meredith did and say, you can't do this because this. I mean, all you can do as a doctor, and sometimes it's really hard too, but all you can do as a doctor or a trainee or a medical student or whatever position you are in the medical field is give the facts and then let the patient decide on their own.
1: Well, and there are certainly times that are probably even more difficult where you can say to a patient knowing full well that there is kind of one right treatment option mm-hmm. and the patient is wanting to deny that treatment option. Mm-hmm. And that can be very frustrating. Mm-hmm. However, in, this was a case that was much more borderline. Yeah. Whether or not this patient had surgery, it was kind of, at least according to what Derek said, high risks of surgery and there are high risks of no surgery. Yeah, exactly. And so for Meredith to take such a strong stance and kind of come at these patients. Mm-hmm. And Meredith says to her, and this really made me upset. Meredith says to her, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. I understand you don't understand being kind of just something you yell in exasperation. Mm-hmm. But I think that in the context of medicine, it can be a really condescending thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Meredith is basically saying, I think you're making the wrong choice and you don't understand because I'm a doctor and I know better than you about this choice that you're making for your family.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that her motivation in talking to this patient is from the medical standpoint because like you said, there's no real good answer and there's no real right answer. And so for Meredith to take such a strong stand, it's coming more from a personal Mm -hmm. side of things and what she's seen with her mom, what she's had to experience with her mom, And so I think that she's coming at it from the personal side of things rather than the medical side of things. And that's just something that you can never do. A hundred percent agreed. But I think that was a great ethical topic in this episode because I think that, again, that's something that we really have to learn and grasp as we go through our medical training is kind of how to provide the information and then take a step back and really let the patient take the reins and not impose your view on the decision. For sure. Well,
1: going off of that, Do you have other ethical things that you want to talk about? Oh, yes.
0: I think one of the main ethical things that I'd like to talk about in terms of this episode is the prostate cancer patient and the Izzy relationships. So we come to find out that Izzy did modeling in medical school in order to pay her debt, which is honestly a very smart thing to do. But this prostate patient that she ended up working with had her catalog and had seen her picture before. And as soon as he saw her in his hospital room he was like, what the heck? Get out of here. I don't want you as my doctor. What are you doing? And this brought up a really interesting point of when can patients have a say and who is treating them? So there's actually something they enacted in the 90s, familiarly known as the patient's bill of rights. And it mm-hmm. basically protects patients' rights for medical care, kind of physician choice, treatment decisions, things of that nature. And so yeah. it really focuses on the fact that patients have a right to their medical care, how they choose to go about treatment, what doctors they choose to have, but in this case, it's tough because Izzy is a trainee. And so I was actually talking to my mom about this. My mom is a family doctor. She went through residency. She was once a doctor in training. And patients can actually refuse to have a trainee on their case. So I I don't know if you've experienced this, Anna, but in the hospital, I've definitely had patients who I've been a part of their care team and I go to see them and they say, no, I don't want a medical student working with me. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that happens, I think, a decent amount. Like At a teaching hospital, I think people do generally know that this is a part of their care. But there are patients who say, I don't want a medical student treating me. I don't know that I've ever seen, though, anybody say, I don't want a resident treating me. Yeah, yeah. And obviously in this episode – we're talking about him not wanting a resident treating him, not because of the quality of care that she can provide,
0: but for a very personal. Oh, person. very personal. Yeah, and I think that's where it's different. I've seen a patient say, "So lumbar puncture is a pretty big procedure, and it's stressful for a lot of patients, and it's where you basically stick a big needle in their back." And there was a first-year intern working with the patient, and the patient basically said, "Hey, have you done this before?" And the intern said, "No, this would be my first one." And he said, "No, I don't want you to." No, it. <laughs> and so I think that's. Been one of the cases I've seen them kind of refuse an intern, but again, that was from more of a medical quality of care standpoint rather than a personal. Yeah. A more appropriate reason. And I have to say,
1: by the time we were getting to this patient storyline, I think I was already so frustrated about the toxic masculinity we saw throughout the episode. Oh yes. You know, throughout the episode, we see George being so annoying (laughs) about anything from just like saying the word tampon. Yeah. And We see Alex being so nasty to Izzy about the modeling that she did. And we see this patient who then at the end, he gives this speech where he says, they're going to expose me to the world and effectively neuter me. And I don't want you to see my emasculation and all of these things. And this is something that I've talked to attendings and residents about before in that patient's have every right to be scared and upset when they're in the hospital. They have a lot of things going Mm -hmm. on. And oftentimes, as a result, they won't show their best selves. And that's something that doctors have to learn to a certain extent to be forgiving of because nobody is really going to be their best self when they are put in these situations. However, and this is a big however, being scared and upset and having all these things happen to you is not an excuse to harass or abuse your care providers. Absolutely, And... The way that he was treating this team of people who was trying to save his life, Mm -hmm. I really didn't think was acceptable. And that's something that I've heard a lot of attendings say to me. If a patient treats you like this, there is zero tolerance for that. They, like... Yeah. You are there for them. You are there to help them. Mm -hmm. They get to make certain requests as a patient. Absolutely. But they don't get to be an asshole. This isn't an excuse
0: to treat you this way. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're there for them and to help them get better and to heal them. And it's hard because from from one side of things, I can see where he's coming from. But on the other side of things, it's like, who cares, man? You're getting your prostate cancer removed. Isn't that more important than saving face in front of this girl that you've seen in the magazines I guess is how I would put it
1: Bailey says something like this I don't remember what the exact line is but Izzy says he doesn't want me there and Bailey says no he doesn't want to have prostate cancer
0: yeah exactly speaking of toxic masculinity can we talk about Alex please I was so upset okay first of all I don't know why these magazines are in the hospital so confused by that. Well, uh, yeah, that's a good but point. The fact that he sees this picture of Izzy, which he's already been joking about her calling her Dr. Model, so in the beginning of the episode he calls her Dr. Model and then we hear his nickname that we hear throughout the entire show, Dr. Evil Spawn. Dr. Evil Spawn. So good. <laughs> My favorite. But basically he sees this magazine and instead of saying, oh you know what? I'll just keep this to myself." He goes, "Let me go to the photocopier. I'm going to copy all these pictures of Izzy or Bethany Whisper is what her magazine name is. And I'm going to paste them not only in the all locker over room, the hospital. but in the elevators, literally all over the hospital so unacceptable. I could
1: not believe it. So there's this whole scene where he's obviously straight up a bully. He also is pestering George throughout this whole episode being like, ah, they think that you're their sister. I know. They don't don't think you're a man. Like totally egging him on Mm -hmm. in this place where he's already clearly insecure. Yeah. I do have a good Alex quote that I just could not stop laughing at. All right, let's hear it. When Izzy comes into the gallery, when they're all watching Derek's surgery on this nail man, Mm-hmm. and Izzy says something to George about buying tampons uh-huh. as they had been discussing but then Alex goes to George and he says talk about shrinking the salamander <laughs> I was like I had to rewind because I was like what did he me- just say <laughs> I'm sorry is that what? the new nickname
0: oh god have you ever
1: heard anybody say anything like that oh, I haven't oh, shrinking the god salamander Alex.
0: so Izzy walks into the co-ed locker room all these pictures of her are hanging up She immediately knows it's Alex because he's taunting her. Yeah, I just thought she was so spot on
1: saying, oh, breasts, oh, glutes, you've never seen these before. And it really is true. And it's one thing for any grown man to behave this way, like unacceptable. It's a whole other thing that Alex is a doctor. These are parts of the human body. These are parts of your anatomy that you see. And I don't know. It was just so immature. Yeah.
0: So I think my most relatable moment from this episode was the medical school debt. I thought it was super powerful that Izzy said, you know, I'm I'm debt free. So, I have nothing to worry about yeah, well, and I'm you can't shame for me for her. being debt free by doing modeling through medical school. As most of you might know, the medical school debt is kind of insane. The amount of money that you have to pay to go through med school and training and then still not get paid very much once you're out of med school makes it really difficult to pay off these student loans and this debt. And so this is what Izzy's referring to. So she basically says, I'm debt-free from working through med school as a model while you still have $200,000 in debt. Which, good for her
1: on saying that. Also, though, I was like, the difference between 2005 and now,
0: I am going to have way more than $200,000 in debt. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I was looking up the average medical school graduate debt. So this is From all student loan debt, so undergrad and medical school. And the average in 2023 is $250,995. So it's just so crazy. But I thought it was super powerful that Izzy said, I'm debt free. All right, what was your most relatable moment from this episode, Anna?
1: It really stuck out to me looking at the general treatment of women in medicine Mm. because I think it's really relevant to note also in all of this stuff with Izzy and being able to pay off her debt that there is still a gap in the amount of money that women make in any career. Mm -hmm. Women, on average, make less money than men and also tend to face, you know, situations like this. Mm -hmm. We're put through the ringer and there's still all of this sexism. And I think that as a woman in medicine, which has been historically a predominantly male field, that that can put you in really tough situations. Mm -hmm. And we saw the same thing with Meredith at the beginning of this episode. Basically after she has this conversation with christina where christina says well i was here earlier than you so i got this patient then Derek comes over and you know starts pestering meredith about what she eats for breakfast and and meredith says i don't want to be seen with you Mm -hmm. and this is largely because christina had just said something to her basically accused meredith of sleeping with and attending to get ahead yeah and i like really felt for her In basically saying, it's hard enough for me as a woman in this hospital to be taken seriously, Mm -hmm. and you're making this worse for me.
0: That's true. Yeah. I think that's definitely a pervasive theme that you see throughout the show. And I'm hoping that it's better than it was back then, but I mean, still, even now, probably two out of ten times – When I went into a room, the patient thought I was a nurse and not a doctor in training.
1: Yeah, I actually just had my own doctor's appointment recently. And the PA who was taking my vitals and asking me questions and could tell by the way that I was responding that I knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, it sounds like, you know, medicine. Are you in school for nursing? (laughs) I was like, are you kidding? Like, excuse me? It's a bummer that it still happens. And I think that both Olivia and I hope to
0: be part of the pushing forward of this issue definitely, definitely. On a less, I guess, serious note, one of my takeaway slash relatable moments from this episode that I think is funny to touch on is again at the beginning of the episode where Meredith is talking about breakfast, or Derek is asking her what she had for breakfast. Meredith is saying, "Oh, you know, cold grilled cheese, cold pizza, like literally anything that you can eat,
1: the leftover." And uh,
0: this is so funny because this was literally me during my clinical rotations. I would literally eat whatever I could that was easy fast and I could transport with me on my way to the hospital sometimes you gotta just put something in your mouth usually it was a banana and peanut butter like I would take a spoon and scoop some peanut butter and eat a banana <laughs> honestly solid breakfast I one time which was honestly one of my favorite
1: days on surgery I have to admit <laughs> I got to the hospital it was 4 30 in the morning and I walked past the cafeteria I don't know who these people were or why they were there especially at 4.30. But they were giving out free ice cream bars. Like it was the kind of ice cream you get at an ice cream truck and they were giving out free ice cream bars to any staff members who were there. So I had my little strawberry shortcake ice cream bar for breakfast I walked into the team room and I was like guys there's ice cream and you know we all sat and ate our ice cream for breakfast. So that was
0: awesome. That's amazing and I'm very jealous that I was not there on that day in the hospital. Yeah it was a good day. It was a good day. And then we end this episode with Meredith actually getting breakfast with Derek. I weeped. Tell me why I see them at the
1: table together. I literally Literally, I well love. It's so cute. I love them. I feel like it's their first official date, you know? I, it is. Well, because she's been saying no. And I think at the end of this episode, you know, she's really valuing the opportunities in life, the joyful opportunities in life that she's seeing being taken from her patient who's so worried that he's going to lose his memory.
0: And she says, all right. Yeah, I mean, that combined with her mom, and I think she's really trying to seize The opportunities that she has, and that opportunity right now is getting breakfast with Derek. I mean, I'd kill to get breakfast with Derek. What can I say? Oh,
1: it's amazing! A perfect end to the episode. It is a
0: perfect end, and we'll see what happens in the next episode with them because. If there's anything that you can count on, it's that something interesting is going to happen with Meredith and Derek.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a great way to end our episode, too.
0: All right. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. And we hope to see you next week as well. See
1: you next time. Thank you so
0: much for joining us for this episode. We hope you leave knowing more than
1: you did before about what is myth and what is medicine.
0: If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. I'm- if you enjoyed this episode, Please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, subscribe to our email list, and make a donation. We appreciate your support, and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.